Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. As always, up to speed with Formula One. It is Thursday, October 14th for the time being. We are in the last few hours and then it is Friday. You know, it's my, my new thing for Friday because it's got a real weekend vibe to it. Anyways, lame jokes notwithstanding, you're listening to Mr. Mark Hamilton and Mr. Mark Daly, which would be me. He's obviously Mr. Mark Hamilton. So welcome to one and all listening on the podcast. To those of you watching on YouTube, it is, um, it's an off weekend in Formula One, but there's plenty of things to talk about both inside of Formula One and outside of Formula One. But before we get into the the meat of the show, we've got a couple of things we wanted to mention off the top. Mark, I know that you want to, uh, you've got a shout out for someone. So why don't you do that first of all? And then I got something really cool I want to share with the audience as well. Well, the shout out is very much about myself and the spirit of self-promotion, which my <laughs> friends know I am all about. I celebrated my 20th anniversary at my employer yesterday, which is something I'm incredibly proud of. They've been great to me. I, I hope they feel I've been the same. But yeah, you're at this point supposed to interject and say you can't possibly be old enough to have spent 20 years at the same. Well, I was going to, but you didn't even like come up for air. You just like kept going. I thought at least you would uh, pause so I could uh, just interject that uh, pre-rehearsed and uh, the pre-requested comment. But yeah, (laughs) that was definitely scripted, but it kind of backfired because I'm like, you promise you're going to say something nice, right? And then you just froze up. So I'll assume it's a glitch with our recording software. Well, exactly. Um, But that is a very cool milestone, uh, joking uh, aside. So congrats. And that is a sincere that. comment on on, uh, on my behalf. I appreciate that. It means a lot. Fingers uncrossed We did a Spaces Chat tonight, our first one yep. in a few weeks. So to everybody listening at home, I very much apologize that we weren't able to stand up a session the last couple of weeks, but maybe it was worth it because while it wasn't our biggest Spaces Chat in terms of participation tonight in terms of raw numbers it was by far the most fun i've ever had in a spaces chat it was a blast we had some special guests that dropped by shout out tim haraney we had somebody from twitter themselves who works on the spaces project that popped in because he's a huge f1 fan as well so that was also a very very special moment so thank you to all that joined and my commitment going forward is i got to get these things back on track we usually do them thursday night usually start somewhere between 6 and 7 p.m pacific standard time. A little late for those of you on the East Coast, but it doesn't seem to matter too much. But we do have a shout out, which you alluded to a couple of moments ago. When we first kind of rebooted the show in the spring, you know, I joined uh, last fall when you began retooling the show, Mr. Daly. Mm -hmm. We finished off the back half of the season. Well, not even the back half of the season, last couple races. We went through winter together. But in the spring, we really put our social media into overdrive because we recognized that was an opportunity. And by social media, I mean Twitter, because neither of us really understand Instagram or Facebook or all of the other uh, social media platforms in the ecosystem. Instagram's a thing, but Facebook really isn't as much anymore, right? I, I love Instagram. And if anyone wants to follow me at Mark and Van City, you'll find some wonderful pictures. But Facebook to me is a bit 
admittedly a bit of a cesspool. I don't feel comfortable <laughs> going over there. But when we rebooted our social media efforts in the spring, one of the first people that followed us and reached out was a gentleman by the name of Joe Santucci based out of Austin, formerly of the Puget Sound. A few weeks ago, he reached out and incredibly kindly, and I promise you, this is not a solicitation for gifts. We are not out there for any freebies. We do this because we love the community, because we love F1. But Joe was incredibly kind and gifted us a Williams Latifi NFT. Now, we're both trying to wrap our heads around what an NFT <laughs> is, but we have it, we've seen it, and it is amazing. Very so cool. big shout out to Joe in Austin. I know you're going to Coda. You were on the Spaces Chat tonight. You gave our listeners a ton of best practices for those that are going to be heading down in about seven or eight days. So thank you for joining the Spaces Chat tonight, and thank you so much for our very first NFT. Yeah, thanks, Joe. We really, really appreciate that. And I want to show you something else uh, that uh, we managed to get our hands on. So for those of you that uh, are watching on uh, YouTube, you'll be able to see this. If you're listening to the podcast, uh, bear with me. I'll give out a website. You can check this out. But I'll, I'll hold this up now and uh, perhaps I'll try not to block my, my microphone. But this is a very, very large format magazine. It looks like it's about 11 by 17. It's called The Race Weekend. And it's very, very cool. It's uh, published uh, by a guy. His name is uh, Magnus Greaves. Interestingly enough, he's also based and lives here in Vancouver. Of Literally, course, of I mean, we're, we're finding out more and more what uh, an under the radar Formula One hotbed of just amazing people that actually live and operate uh, and create content in Formula One. Anyways, Magnus was kind enough to send us a copy of this uh, this magazine, and it is absolutely stunning. And uh, I w I'm very, very grateful. I mean, I, I we, we had a chat with Magnus uh, not so long ago, and I, I mentioned to him that when I was growing up, my dad had these boxes of uh, old autosport magazines from like the 60s and 70s. And this magazine, the, the, the photography is stunning. There's some contemporary modern stuff that's uh, taken by, by iconic, and legendary uh, Formula One photographer Darren Heath. And they also have a lot of archival stuff. I mean, most of it's modern, but some pretty cool stuff uh, that they've, they've got from back in the archives. There's from previous eras. I mean, there's pictures of Senna and uh, from the 70s and, and stuff like that. Very, very cool. You should check it out. Uh, go to theraceweekend.com. And that is a spelled uh, race, or sorry, T-H-E-R-A-C-E-W-K- and D, I should just uh, check this, uh, read this out properly. Yeah, race theraceweekend.com, and uh, that's WKND.com. Very, very cool. They are going to be at Coda. Magnus said uh, they're not actually going to be at the circuit, but uh, you know, I'm you know, I'm giving this like nine and a half thumbs up out of ten. We don't do half point or full points in Formula One anymore, so I'm going with nine and a half. Anyways, they're going to be have a couple of pop ups around the city at the the, the pickup points for the shuttle at uh, downtown at uh, San Jacinto Boulevard and East Fourteenth Street. Barton Creek Mall, uh, Bastrop Memorial Stadium, and Guadalupe and 51st Street. So, you know, check it out. It is really, really, really awesome stuff. I mean, the photography is in there, and I cannot say enough good stuff uh, about this. And I'm extremely grateful that uh, that we were able to, to, to take a look at this, and I can't wait to get my hands on, on more copies of this. I think the next one they said is going to be, um, uh, the, the next one I think was Formula One in the 70s, which is awesome. I mean, the, the, the picture of the cover is a picture of Emerson Fittipaldi and Emmo rocking the big 70 sunglasses and the big lamb chop sideburns. It looks uh, fantastic. I can't wait till that one is uh, comes out. 
I think the best way to describe the race weekend is it's like a quarterly coffee table book. Mm-hmm. Don't don't think of this as a magazine that's full of advertisements. There are no advertisements. Yep, it's none at all. a large format magazine, heavy stock paper, and just beautiful, beautiful photographs from Formula One past and present. And a lot of their more recent work has been done by a photographer, possibly the most famous Formula One photographer, a gentleman named Darren Heath, who travels the circuit, fully a credential. He goes to every single event and has for years. A lot of their work comes from him, from him, but just absolutely beautiful. And to your point as well, it's incredibly exciting to know that there's somebody else in our backyard mm-hmm. that works on this. And then ironically, his partner lives just a couple of blocks <laughs> from both of us. So Go all figure, this right? F1 content's being created within a few square blocks and none of us knew about it. And, and it's amazing. the last thing I would add is you reached out to me last week. I was on my stationary bike because it was raining, watching some trailer park boys on Netflix. Yes, blast me. But uh, <laughs> you started messaging me and you were super excited because you'd received the, yeah. your first copy in the mail. And the ironic part was maybe 10, 15 minutes later, one of our listeners, Micah Boyce, um, reached out and he and I chat all the time about hip hop. He's a fantastic listener, but he had just stumbled across the site itself. And I had actually brought him up to Magnuson when we were talking today. And he's like, I actually saw his subscription come through. I was so excited. (laughs) So so kudos to him for uh, embarking on the journey of subscribing to this magazine. I subscribe today personally, punched in my credit card details. I'm excited to see it, but I would encourage everyone to check them out because one, not only is this a great thing to have on your coffee table but if you've got anyone in your life that's a formula one fan subscription for christmas could be a really nice gift as well yeah and you don't read it you experience it it really is exactly. uh, that good exactly awesome so let's uh, get into the the meat of the show like i was saying there's been no shortage of things uh, to, to talk about uh, unfortunately there's been some more ugliness has reared its head in the the public realm not in formula one but in another high profile sport with the resignation of john gruden former head coach of the las vegas raiders and some very unpleasant uh, things that he's done over a number of years and you know I, I number one I'm glad to see a guy like that go um, but you know it's just unfortunate that these things still keep happening there's just no space for that in in society and especially not in sports itself and it just um I think it kind of comes back to this whole discussion that we've had over, I guess, you know, going on almost a year now, the whole we race is one thing and really hope that that becomes more, you know, really takes root in Formula One because you see, um, you know, Sebastian Vettel is really using his platform to really talk about some of the issues with Formula One. He was talking to this specifically about the sports washing um what do you want to call it? Phenomenon, maybe not phenomena is not the greatest word, but he's also been talking about things like sustainability and just uh, chasing the money and things like that. And I think it's very important uh, when you have guys that like a quadruple world champion like like Sebastian standing up and using his position in the sport uh, for good, much like uh, Lewis Hamilton does to uh, really be that voice of, uh, to try and promote and grow diversity within Formula One. And I think it's uh, incredibly important, especially in light of news uh, that we saw earlier this week with uh, Gruden and the Raiders and that whole nasty business unfolding. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you say. And when I see situations like this unfold, my my biggest concern is less about that individual, because I think if you're going to conduct yourself that way in 2021, you're mm-hmm. eventually going to expose yourself. But yep. I think the concern for me is, 
Obviously, people within that organization, within previous organizations, within ESPN, people enabled this behavior that people saw these emails, were copied on these emails, were recipients oh, totally. of these emails, yeah. and yet nobody felt felt comfortable standing up for this. And that speaks volumes about the cultures of the organizations within which he worked, that people didn't feel they could report this kind of conduct without potential backlash, for instance. So happy to see him go. There's no need for that. There's no place for that in modern Modern society, but shame on the organizations that he was a part of for fostering a culture and environment where people didn't feel comfortable reporting that. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, let's uh, get into the, the the meat of the Formula One news. Uh, th- this one is um, it's, it's it's very contemporary. I think it's a, it's interesting to, to talk about. And that's uh, news that uh, medical car driver. Um, uh, where is it here? I lost my notes. Uh, Alan uh, van der Meer, he is going to miss the final races of the 2021 season. And this is not necessarily a big news, where well, it is big news, but uh, it's nothing new because uh, this uh, was actually a story that broke last week. Both he and uh, Dr. Ian Roberts, I mean, they jumped into the limelight uh, last year after Roman Grosjean had that horrible crash at uh, Sakhir and the big fire. And, you know, they, they were there literally within seconds to help uh, get Roma out of that big uh, fireball. Anyways, they both uh, tested positive for, for COVID last week, but uh, Van der Meer has uh, confirmed on social media that he's uh, actually not been vaccinated, which is a personal choice. And, you know, it's it's a bit hit and miss in this day and age as to where you can and cannot travel if you are fully vaccinated. He previously had COVID last year, which is kind of interesting because he's you know, tested positive again. And, uh, you know, he's, so he's relying more on the natural immunity thing rather than having the vaccination. So I, I understand that. I mean, it's it's a very can be a very sensitive and hot button debate but he's going to 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 miss that but you know that that is obviously an important important job to have so those are big shoes to fill but there are plenty of qualified uh, people uh, to do that your your thoughts on that mark yeah i i think you did a good job summarizing this he's been in formula 1 he's had this role principally since 2009 obviously he's been exceptional he's attended to some very serious crashes some minor crashes obviously he was very much front and center during the grosjean crash at sahir last year. Mm -hmm. I think what surprises me about this is less about his personal decision, which is fine. I I didn't appreciate his tweets because I thought there was some misinformation in there. For instance, he suggested that in many developed countries, including Switzerland, that having had COVID is equivalent to having had a vaccination. That's not true. And it's not true in Switzerland, especially. But I think for me, the bigger piece here is I'm shocked that the FIA hasn't mandated vaccination for their medical staff. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, I'm shocked that the FIA hasn't mandated vaccination for most of their traveling track support infrastructure staff, because this is staff that uh, interacts with the drivers, they interact with the paddock, they interact with the fans, they interact with locals. To me, it just seems like a no brainer. And certainly we don't want to go down that path of kind of being political in, in either specific direction, but there's a tool available to these folks to keep the public and to keep the paddock safe and yep. to keep the individuals that are traveling safe. And the FIA has chosen not to mandate that for members of the FIA, which is a, a little bit shocking to be to be totally honest. So whether he returns next year is to be seen because maybe the FIA evolves on their position regarding vaccination. But to your point, he's going to miss the rest of the season. But to be fair, let's be very clear. The article makes it seem like the FIA has 
ruled him ineligible. That's not necessarily the case. The reality is to go to Qatar or to go to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, you need to have proof of vaccination, which he doesn't have. And to get into the paddock in Abu Dhabi, once again, he would need to have proof of vaccination, which he doesn't have. So the fact that he won't be traveling for the rest of the season is less to do with a penalty or a punishment administered by the FIA and Liberty, but rather the fact that the countries that the sport is traveling to will not allow him through their borders. Well, ultimately, that uh, what it comes to is uh, local jurisdictions and what their requirements are for you know vaccination and health status of travelers and, and things like that. Okay, I did want to talk next about the uh, historical Adelaide Grand Prix circuit. Well, obviously, there's not been an Australian Grand Prix there in a good number of years. That uh, honor has gone to uh, Melbourne, I wouldn't say since time immemorial, but certainly uh, getting there. Anyhow, I want to take a, a very, very quick uh, break here. And when we come back on the flip side, we'll talk about that. So guys, don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And now we are going to talk about some historical Formula One tracks. Well, Adelaide to be specific, because there was uh, news this week that this, uh, well, not the entire track, but at least a 1.2 kilometer stretch of the track, which used to host the Australian Grand Prix. Uh, well, at least not for going on 25 years, but it was under threat of uh, being completely demolished and uh, torn up. Uh, but uh, there was uh, part of a, a proposal for redevelopment of Adelaide's uh, Victoria Park there. Anyways, uh, under the, the auspices of, uh, of Heritage, this has been saved for the time being. And it's interesting, too, because there was uh, some news, I guess it was about a year ago, that uh, perhaps uh, there might be a new bid to try and get the, uh, the, the Australian Grand Prix back to Adelaide. Obviously, that's uh, not going to, to happen, at least in the short to medium term, what with uh, Melbourne looking pretty set to, to be the host there for at least uh, the next uh, several years. But uh, very, very interesting. I mean, there, there's a couple of uh, very standout uh, moments, uh, you know, for, for me, for the Australian Grand Prix. I've never been there, but two things that uh, really stand out in my mind, and I'm sure there, there's many others, was uh, Nigel Mansell and his big, uh, you know, tire explosion back in 1986, which really cost him the, uh, the, the, the championship. Uh, that season and took him another six years to win it in 92 but that was one that uh, very much uh, stood out in my mind and then uh, Mika Hackman had an awful crash there which almost uh, nearly cost him his life I mean he spent a you know good uh, long time in hospital there and then uh, afterwards uh, Mika donated a, a lot of money to the hospital there as part of a gesture of a thank you to um, you know for all the you know the healthcare workers that helped him 
recover from that uh, horrible accident. But you know, on a side note, uh, we had uh, you know a lot of photos from uh, listener Phil Amato who lives uh, in uh, in Adelaide, and uh, he took a lot of these pictures back uh, in the day. And uh, you know, I've never got a chance to to thank Phil, but uh, you know, really wonderful stuff uh, to see those. I love the the old uh, photos, but kind of cool to see that uh, you know perhaps that fire has not completely burnt out just yet. Phil, if you're listening, we would love to we would love to get a sense of what the community debate is like because based I think on what we know, there's two really competing forces in that community. One side that wants to sweep away all of the legacy of motorsports of the Grand Prix, replace the track with parkland, replace the track with tree cover, but there's also mm-hmm. another there's another maybe more pragmatic force that wants to preserve that heritage, but also potentially maybe one day be able to host a Formula E, which has been a conversation for parts of the last six to 12 months. But for those of you listening that aren't familiar with the Adelaide Grand Prix, this is where the Australian Grand Prix was held prior to 96. They held it from, I think, 82 right through 95. It was a fantastic, fantastic, tight, yep. rough bumpy street circuit as it should always be. But some of the crowds that they had at this event were mind-boggling given the size of the city back in the 80s and the 90s. And one of the points that really resonated with me while I was researching the story was just the fact that so many people in that city recognized that the Grand Prix put Adelaide on the map for a lot of people. And to be perfectly honest, that's how I came to know it. And so many of the cities that host Formula One today are on my personal radar because of Formula One. Like I'm very, very proud of my sophisticated knowledge of the entire <laughs> Middle East region, but I probably couldn't have found Baku before 2016. So right. that's why I think sometimes for countries, it's really valuable to have a Formula One race because it's a really great marketing tool to bring exposure to your city, your community, your culture, and help attract visitors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there are some benefits, uh, like you say, to really promote a city or a region, and and you know, likewise. I mean, a, a lot of these uh, circuits and, and and places that uh, that Formula One races now, and 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 some of the races that have uh, fallen off the schedule over the years. Um, yeah, I, I learned about it uh, the same way you did, uh, you know, through watching Formula One races, which is uh, really kind of cool. All right, let's uh, move on to the next story. I'll just uh, pull up uh, my uh, notes here. Okay, so uh, one of the, uh, the the venues, and uh, I'm going to you know test your knowledge of the Middle East here. This is a, a very timely one, and this has to do with the up-and-coming uh, inaugural Qatar Grand Prix, which is uh, going to be coming up uh, in just uh, only several weeks uh, from now. Anyway, so the Lisea track. It does host uh, MotoGP. It is a very small kind of facility compared to what we're used to in Formula One. The grandstands are quite small, but this is going to be a temporary track. Something else is going to be uh, coming online. It does have all the proper licenses in place to host a Formula One uh, race. Anyways, the point is right now, they are modifying the pit lane and and I love this somewhat dramatically ahead of the Grand Prix this uh, you know, th- this year. So there, there's a lot of work going in, and I mean you're also a big MotoGP fan, so maybe you can give a little bit more uh, a little bit more context to this, Mark. I I do love Lucille. Lucille is very much uh, I would say a motorbike specific track. It was mm-hmm. built specifically with MotoGP in mind. It's hosted MotoGP since 2004. It's tight. It doesn't necessarily, and it will. It doesn't necessarily have the 
the thick, heavy double sausage curves on some of the exit apexes on some of the corners because bikes typically aren't going to cut corners in the same way that a Formula One driver may be prone to do if given the opportunity. So they have to do a couple of modifications. One, which is they're installing sausage curbs. And to your point, they're also working on the pit lane entry. But I think when we get there, you'll recognize right away that this is not a long-term home for Formula One. To your point, minimal grandstands. I think they sit between eight and 10,000 people immediately adjacent to, immediately parallel to the grid. The track is tight. It's very, very narrow. It curves in on itself a number of different times. And it was built on a relatively small budget. I believe it was built for less than $100 million over the course of a couple of months. It sits about 30, 35 minutes north, northwest of downtown Doha, which is the the capital city of Qatar. So it's a good temporary host. i be perfectly honest, I would have been just as happy if we'd gone back to Bahrain, but it sounds like this was an opportunity for Liberty to forge a long-term relationship with that city. And to your point, they won't be hosting Formula One there next year. Next year, of course, Qatar is going to be hosting the FIFA World Cup. So in an effort to create as much runway for that event as possible, they're going to take a pause. Mm -hmm. And it looks like they'll be back in 2023 racing on a newly designed circuit, possibly something downtown, which would likely be a hybrid of a street track and a permanent track along the corners. Very similar, I suspect, to what we're going to see in Jeddah in just about a month. You know what's also very interesting, too, looking at the pictures of the existing facility at La, La Salle, is when I see the grandstands, the way that they're uh, situated and the size of them, it really reminds me of the old Hockenheim. I haven't been to Hockenheim since the, 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 the reno and the rebuild. But a very small kind of like one tier grandstands right across from the from the pit lane, and uh, it really has that kind of like small feel to it. I mean, uh, uh, Hockenheim has uh, really gone uh, you know a, a major redevelopment since the the last time I was there. But uh, certainly, it's it's going to be cool to see another new track that we haven't necessarily or we weren't necessarily expecting. I mean, there there was a lot of. I guess, smoke associated with that uh, fire because it, it really seemed like it took a long time before it uh, was announced and uh, what with uh, all the things going on there with uh, what was it, the 10-year deal that they're going to have to run this race until 2032. You can understand why there was all this uh, sort of speculation and news that kind of like uh, filtered or percolated to the surface before the official announcement uh, came just a, a few weeks ago. All right, uh, next story up is, uh, and this one's kind of cool, is that the FIA are working on what is called a motorsport-wide driver ranking system. I know that uh, we we see things like this, but um, I can see this if it comes online that uh, this could be a little bit of a contentious issue. I mean, I think it's a, a little bit easier when it comes to ranking. So you've got like your NFL Week 5 power rankings or something like that, or for the NHL or baseball, basketball, whatever it might be. <laughs> You know, when it comes to driver rankings, that's a little bit, there's a lot to unpack there when you're going to rank a driver because ultimately the, you know, (laughs) the driver has obviously all the input to what happens on the track, but it's not all down to the person that's in the cockpit steering the car. I mean, we, we often, you know, cheer for our favorite driver and, uh, and, you know, that's just the way it is, but there's a lot that goes into getting these cars on the track. So I don't know what to, to, to feel about this. I mean, sure. Yeah. Rank, rank the drivers if you will, but perhaps maybe I'm reading a little bit more into it than 
than, than there's there, there is to it, right? I find this to be a bizarre initiative. And the curious thing is it's being driven by the FIA. And what they propose is a multidisciplinary ranking system mm-hmm. that would capture drivers competing in all of the globe's biggest motorsport series. But of course, the issue is that some of the world's bigger motorsport series don't link up or work with the FIA. NASCAR, for instance, Indy has very little involvement with, with the FIA on a day-to-day basis. But their proposal is that you would bring all of these different forms of motorsports together and you develop a ranking system that was similar to what the ATP and the WTA use. So it would be a points-based system. And at the end of the year, the driver, whether it's male or female, the driver with the most points would be crowned. I don't know what they would crown them. They would crown them as something. It seems very odd to me for starters. I don't believe the FIA can bring all of the major championships, all Mm -hmm. the major racing series into this. I don't understand what they would have to gain. If I'm NASCAR, why would I sign up for this if my drivers maybe don't finish in the top 10? And if I'm Formula One and I like to present myself as the preeminent premier motorsport series of the globe, what happens if we finish the year and it's not one of our drivers that sits the top of these rankings? It's very strange. It would be very subjective. I have no idea how you would index drivers from from WRC against drivers from Formula One, against drivers from NASCAR, and potentially against MotoGP. To your point, they're very different series. The drivers have very different roles and involvement in the development of the car. Are you going to punish Lewis Hamilton because one of his mechanics makes an error? It's very, very odd, but it seems like the FIA is very, very intent on having this. And furthermore, there's rumors that they would want to stand up an end of season uh, masters type event like you see in tennis. It's it's very, very odd. And perfect to be perfectly honest, and I, I saw this in a comment somewhere today, that if if motorsports and the FIA want to embrace some sort of Champions League where you can bring great drivers from different disciplines into one place, what Formula One needs to do is make sure that they don't race during Le Mans and make sure they don't race during the Indy 500. And if you have drivers in Formula One, and we've seen this in the past with Fernando Alonso, that want to compete in those events, give them the opportunity. Let the Indy 500, let Le Mans, mm-hmm. let those become those those heritage championship events that are cross-disciplinary and let those drivers compete. But the idea of a multidisciplinary power ranking systems for motorsport is borderline absurd yeah actually i i misunderstood this one when i first saw it i thought it was just a like a driver ranking that's specific to formula one but when you branch or try and spread it across multiple disciplines and types of motor racing that makes about as much sense as coming up with like a world cycling uh, ranking exactly when you've exactly. got road cyclists and time trial and and mountain biking and cyclocross or with winter sports you've got like downhill skiers and and freestyle and snowboarders you know none of this you know or, or ski cross none of it you know i mean it's kind of cool but it, it, it's how do you reconcile apples and oranges right when you're only kind of thinking apples and apples so yeah now that i understand well maybe that's why i was confused to to begin with is because this is such a bizarre concept but uh, now now that we've hashed it out a little bit further i think i'm less in favor of it uh, than than i was uh, beforehand but uh, last time i checked uh, the fia was not uh, you know checking with me on these things uh, first of all Okay, so six sprint qualifying races and testing changes has been agreed by the F1 Commission for 2022. 
too. So we talked about this, I believe it was last week, uh, that uh, they wanted to have uh, at least or up to one third of the races next year to be uh, sprint qualifying uh, events, which we thought at the time was a little bit uh, too much. But I, I guess that six out of what, 23 races, which we're kind of assuming is going to be where they're going to land for next year, is a little bit uh, smaller than that. It remains to be seen. Is that the right amount for for 2022 or is that uh, not enough or is it just right? Did they get into the Goldilocks zone? We will see. Uh, but then also they've uh, uh, tweaked the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the testing changes as well. So it's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that or maybe I'm just not remembering the same as in past years, but it seems to be getting rather late in the year to not really have uh, seen pretty much the, the, the final cut of a provisional Formula One calendar for the following or the, the, the next season. Yeah, it definitely is, and we've alluded to this in the past that we'll often see preliminary cuts of the of the calendar as as early as August or September. And in the past, there would be minimal changes. I think what's what's making this very exciting is we've obviously seen some fairly substantial changes to the calendar over the course of the last couple of years. And for a lot of our listeners, it's funny that you know what you've always known Portugal to be on the calendar, and that's really a new addition after mm-hmm. being absent for so long. And for a lot of people, like yeah, Turkey's always been on the calendar, but some of these events are either new to the calendar or they're returning after a lengthy absence. But typically, we would know the calendar, and I think we have a pretty good sense of what it's going to look like. We've we've spoken to that in the past, but to not have a finalized calendar is a little bit surprising. And I think as you spoke to a few moments ago, maybe part of that is the fact that the FIA, well, less the FIA, but more Liberty wants to really dial in those dates that will feature a sprint qualifying event. And we talked about this last week as well and shared our reservations about whether that's the right thing to do or whether it's the wrong thing to do. And both of us, I believe, were very open to the concept early. I think I cooled on the idea very, very very quickly. I was extremely excited going into Silverstone. <laughs> I was far less excited at at Monza and I'm not at all excited for for Brazil. I just I hope F1 acknowledges that the current formula can continue to be tweaked. I don't like the idea of sprint qualifying setting the grid for the Grand Prix. I'm fully open to the idea of having qualifying set the grid for sprint qualifying and for the race, but I also believe that sprint qualifying should just become what it is. It's a sprint race, sprint race. sprinkle yep. some extra points on there, make the big weekend a big deal, sell it to your network partners, uh, charge more hosting fees or sanctioning fees for those specific weekend, let different countries fight over who gets to host these, do it on a rotational basis or regional basis. There's some things you can do there. I just don't love the current formula and I can't see a lot of these teams getting excited or getting too risky when it comes to these events because of mis- Mistake in sprint qualifying can cost you a lot of money in the cost cap era, and it can put you at a real disadvantage come the next day. Yeah, totally. And and I was kind of thinking the way that you were talking that the first thing that kind of popped into my mind is that uh, that meme of the guy sitting behind a table in the park. And I was thinking the caption could be uh, F1 sprint qualifying hasn't lived up to the hype. Convince me I'm wrong. Right. Yeah. And yeah. and I think that, you know, I, I was really excited to see it at Silverstone. And I, I kind of 
much like yourself, I cooled on it when I saw it at, at uh, sorry, not at Imola, at Monza. I'm kind of on 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 the fence now. It's not like um, okay, well, it's not like I want to hear the elevator pitch because you know, we already know what's out there. It's just like okay, if this is going to become a thing now, impress me. Like, like, why should I get jacked up? Why should I get excited about this? Because we're going to see it a couple more times this year, and we're going to see it six times out of a potential 23 race calendar in 2022. So that that that's where I'm at right now. I'm not ready to throw it out and and discard it completely but uh, much like yourself i think it's just like i I think they need to move away from the concept of sprint qualifying and and just like you said call it a sprint race come up with some sort of like points for it and then somehow figure in okay well this is how we have the sprint race but how does how how do we determine the grid for the actual race the main event on sunday afternoon how does that factor into Friday, Saturday, and 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 all these different events uh, going on. Because I like, haven't, go I haven't ahead. asked yeah. you this question before, and sure. I'm curious to know. We're going to see 23 races next year. It's going to be a record by F1 standards. You know, it's, as recently as 10, 15 years ago, we were seeing 17, 18 races a year. Next year, we're going to see 23. So we're talking about an expansion of the calendar in the range of 20%. Imagine if they added 16 more games to an NBA season, mm-hmm. or if they added two games, got the NFL calendar to 19 games. From your perspective as a fan, how do you feel about a 23 race calendar? Is that something you're excited about, or do you kind of groan a bit because it's a commitment? Yeah, I, I think I'm very much right at my limit of the amount of Formula One that I can handle in in an entire season. Don't get me wrong. I mean, obviously, we, we, we love the sport. We love Formula One. I mean, we love what we do here. And But I mean, it becomes a bit of a grind, especially in, in, in the summer. And this comes, you know, purely from the point of view from a fan and from uh, as a podcaster but when you commit like we do to basically doing two shows a week when you know we're doing one on Thursday night then on Sunday night and then you have all the different things going on in between watching sprint qualifying and qualifying and the race and all these different things it does start to to add up and it's just like that's where I think they really need to find that uh, you know it's either to the, you know, the 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 porridge is too hot or it's too cold or this one is just right and I think that I know that they have this uh, provision in the Concord agreement to, to go up to 25 races. And I've kind of changed my position on this compared to a couple of years ago where I'd be like, yeah, let, let, let's bring it on. But I think that just from the uh, the, the consumer point of view, I, I think that 23 is really pushing the the, the limits of the uh, of the envelope. I mean, I, I can't imagine being one of these uh, people that works in Formula One, not just uh, you know an engineer or a mechanic or the drivers or you know anybody at all that's involved in the uh, you know the operations of the team. You can see why there's some legitimate concern. We've seen some things come out. Uh, there, there's been some things suggested uh, or you know out explicitly said by some people that within the Formula One uh, you know bubble. Uh, how this is really going to put a, a strain on on people and on, on their mental health and just uh, you know just with all the stress to do 23 or perhaps 25 races so yeah it's 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 going to be a lot to chew I'm glad you feel that way because I was feeling a little bit guilty myself that (laughs) I keep hearing this, that term thrown around or that phrase that, hey, we're going to see 23 races next year. We're going to see 23 races. And and I grimace a little bit because I love Formula One and I relish those Sundays that I get to do a race and I get excited that you and I get to sit down and talk about this. But 23 races is a commitment and 25, because ultimately, let's be honest, 23 is just a bridge to 25. And you were smart to mention a couple of minutes ago that that 
that's what's in the Concord Agreement. And for those of you that don't know, the Concord Agreement is basically the agreement between Liberty and the team that binds them into a contractual arrangement, which is the championship. Yep. And in the most recent Concord Agreement, all of the teams agreed that they're okay with a 25 race calendar if Liberty can find the events and put together a calendar. So I think it's it's kind of odd that sometimes we hear these teams talking about mental health and the the well-being of their people, but they do that knowing that, hey, we've got to solve for the fact that within the next couple of years, we're going to be traveling to 25 races, whereas 10, 13 years ago, we were going to 17 and we would regularly have off weeks. And in the world with 25 races, either you're going to have to start racing the first week of March and consistently finish in December, or you're going to have back to back to back to back events consistently throughout the year. And I don't know that that's good for the drivers or the teams. And the reality is the reason we do this is because Formula One's two principal sources of income are network TV money, which is network signing up and they pay mm-hmm. on a by race basis. So if you put two more events on the calendar, you get to extract that much more revenue out of your network partners and two, the sanctioning event or the sanctioning fees from the cities that actually host these, these races. So for formula one, it's all upside. And again, a lot of that money gets funneled right back into the teams through the championship by the math that's outlined in the Concord agreement. So ultimately formula one profits and so do the teams, but there's this delicate balancing act of making sure that you can manage a championship that is compelling to viewers and also continues to peak interest because if we're going into the fourth straight weekend with Formula One, I don't know how invested I'm going to be. Whereas, hey, if it's a race every two weeks, I'm excited, I'm pumped, yep. I'm eager, I'm anxious, I want to go. Four straight weekends is too much. You know, also what is interesting too is the, uh, I guess, the logistical problem that it poses in this cost cap era that, you know, you can't expect the same group of people at the track your your operations team to be able to you know handle 25 basically 50 percent of the year on the road or 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 25 weekends at a venue not not to mention all the stuff that they do back at uh, at the factories at the team headquarters and winter testing you know that that is a serious serious uh, commitment i mean people will do it but that's going to be a bit of a meat grinder when it comes to 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 people and uh, eventually you're going to hit the wall and uh and and just uh you know bonk right so but also that's just like well you know yeah how, how do you compensate for that you, you can't expect to have like one group of people uh, do that all the time well they, you know how do you you know in, in this era where they're expected to reduce costs and be you know i wouldn't say more frugal but more efficient in the way that they operate uh all around as, as a team not just uh you know, just the cars themselves, but all aspects to get under this. Well, I guess what we're aiming for ultimately is 130 million dollars. So, in, in the next couple of years, is a very, very interesting uh, prospect. Anyways, uh, time for another quick break. When we come back, still plenty of things to, to talk about. So, don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show and a little bit of a Ferrari news to talk about. And that is that uh, team principal uh, Mattia Bonato is not going to be at Coda next uh, weekend as a development in their 2022 uh, contender, or at least they hope it's going to be a contender. At least Ferrari's 2022 car is now at what uh, Mattia calls a crucial stage of uh, development. Uh, he said that he's also going to miss the races in uh, Brazil and Mexico uh, because of the, uh, the 
the the phase, the part of the development for next year's car. I don't think that this is comes as a, a real shock. I mean, uh, he did say uh, before the start of the season that he wouldn't be attending all of the races, but I think this uh, really goes to show that um, not that they're writing the season off, but I think that uh, it, it's important because I mean, at heart, Mattia is an engineer. That uh, that is his uh, background, and I think it just goes to show that how much effort that Ferrari is putting into this new car and I think this kind of is very much in line with the with the, with the tone of the messaging that has come out of Marinello over say the past 18 to 24 months how that you know don't expect us to be a contender in the short term we're looking at 22 23 before we're uh, you know consistently challenging for podiums and races and ultimately uh, championships again so at least from my point of view not a big surprise not a lot to add here. This isn't unusual for for those of you that might be witnessing this for the first time. It's not unusual that some key executives and team principals start staying behind at the factory in the final couple of months of the season because ultimately there comes a point where you recognize that the writing's on the wall in terms of your competitiveness for the current championship. I still think Ferrari has a shot at third, and I think their mm-hmm. recent power unit upgrades, specifically the components related to their hybrid system, might might make them a little bit more racy, and I think we saw a little bit of that during the last Grand Prix, but we'll see more and more of this from a number of the teams. Maybe it's a little bit surprising here, but it also speaks to the emphasis and the energy that they're putting around their 2022 title contender. I think with the exception maybe of Christian Horner and Total Wolf, we'll probably see this trickle down throughout most of the paddock over the course of the last six Grand Prix, but it also speaks to how quickly this this championships is uh, coming down to the end. I know, it really is uh, surprising. I mean, it, 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 it really has gone fast this season. I mean, it, it's obviously been going for a good number of months now, but it seems like time has just flown since the very first race of the year in Bahrain. And we're, we're sitting here going to the last, uh, like you say, half dozen uh, races of the year. But I would be, I, I think what would be very noteworthy is if either Horner or Toto did not uh, attend one of these uh, races coming up, just considering how much is uh, at stake in both the drivers and constructors at uh, championships. So not that would necessarily indicate from either one of them, uh, as team principal or either one of those teams in Red Bull or Mercedes that they're 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 throwing in the towel on the championship but I I would expect that both of those guys are going to be dialed in and focused what's happening at the track what's happening on the circuit between Verstappen between Hamilton and between those two teams in the championship over these next half dozen races or so. Okay, so now we're going to get back to a discussion that uh, we've had uh, over the past uh, couple of weeks. Uh, we've talked about you know the you know, the sustainability of Formula One and the development of the the new power units for 2026. The possibility that we might see the Volkswagen Group either as Audi or Porsche come into the sport uh, over the next uh, couple of years, and just uh, these new sustainable um, uh, you know fuels. And uh, Jos Capito, the uh, team principal of uh, Williams, uh, says that Formula One teams can can't sit around and wait for FIA regulations to what he calls steer them towards future sustainability targets. And this is something that they're going to have to uh, pursue on their own and be show a little bit of a initiative on their own side to, to do. And I think this is also goes very much hand in hand with uh, some of the comments uh, that uh, Sebastian Vettel was uh, talking about uh, this uh, week, just uh, in terms of the power units uh, themselves, just not really being relevant. I mean, he commented uh, just to you know, what, what marvelous technology it is, but yeah, we're not going to see a knock, you know, sort of a, a really, uh, 
uh, pared down version of a Formula One power unit in in a Honda or a Ford or a, or Mercedes road car for that uh, for for that matter. So some very very interesting things coming from some notable uh, voices within the paddock. Definitely. United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change uh, is something that the Williams team have signed up to. In fact, they're the first Formula One team to agree in principle to that, that uh, I would say, that policy framework. And mm-hmm. I think it's good to see a Formula One team pressing forward. And I think what's really key here, and when I saw this headline, I, I immediately thought that why would this team potentially put themselves at a disadvantage relative to the rest of the grid by pushing forward with, I would say, emission savings, emission saving um, initiatives throughout their powertrain when other teams weren't doing it? Because presumably there would be a power loss. But I think what he's really speaking to is rather than kind of forging forward with changes to the power unit that could put them at a disadvantage because ultimately the formula really dictates a lot of what they can and can't do with this. What he's really speaking about is the greater infrastructure of Formula One. I think when we talk about the emissions footprint, the carbon footprint of Formula One, we look at the cars, but relative to the globe and all of the pollution that human beings create, those Formula One cars create an immeasurably small amount. It's Mm -hmm. nothing. It's absolutely nothing. But what is a bigger footprint is the infrastructure of Formula One. It's the transporters, it's the ships, it's the jets, and it's the factories. And the wind tunnels within the factories consume a huge amount of electricity. And if your factory is pulling electricity off of a coal-fired plant grid or off of a nuclear-powered grid, that's not necessarily a good thing. So I think what he's committing to here is evaluating all of the other ways that their team is creating carbon footprint, which is, hey, what can we do differently at our factory? Is it LED lighting throughout the factory and the offices? Is it getting rid of old CRT tubes when we could be using LCDs? Is it the fact that, hey, we could be using computational fluid dynamics through our server farm rather than using the wind tunnel? If we're using a server farm, where could we save electricity? Can we put solar panels on the roof of the factory? So I think that's what he's really speaking to. And also just when it comes to the transportation and the logistics of the team, we're bringing these people and these supplies to every race. Well, what if we source some of these things locally so we don't have to fly that second jet with these second parts? Or what if we set up an office in this region so we could pull resources and people from there? So I think that's what he's really speaking to. And it's nice to see a team having these conversations. I'm still of the mind that the proposed blueprint for the new power unit that we'll possibly see in 2025, which will probably be a low displacement, small displacement, 1.6 liter V6 with some sort of turbocharged power or double hybrid, well, probably single hybrid configuration, I think is still the way to go. I'm still very content with synthetic fuels, but I think what a lot of people are now arguing is, hey, why can't F1 take the plunge and go all electric? Mm -hmm. One, I don't think Formula E is a competition to F1. It never will be. It is a massively, massively standardized spec series. In fact, we've heard manufacturers like BMW who are now leaving the sport specifically say, we have nothing else to learn by competing in the sport. And by that, what they mean is, look, the rules are so strict with respect to what we can and can't develop. There's nothing more for us to do here because we joined the sport because we wanted to develop technologies that we could trickle into our road cars. We've hit that ceiling. There's nothing else for us to develop here, we're Hmm. out. Formula One doesn't have that ceiling or theoretically shouldn't have that ceiling, but I also don't believe that Formula One's in a position whereby in four years, they're going to be able to put 1,000 horsepower electric 
engines into these cars that can sustain the requirements of a Formula One race car and deliver the experience that we want to see. So I think synthetic fuel is a bridge, but I think the other piece too is I don't think the global the global marketplace for passenger cars is going to be fully electric within the next three or four years. It might be 15%, maybe globally at 16%. It's not going to be 100%. So I think the path that Formula One is forging is the right one, but it's good to see team principals and and executives like like uh, this gentleman speak to what they can do even off the track to reduce global emissions. You know, just on a side note as well, when I hear comments like this uh, by someone like Yas Capito, I, I have to think more about just where Williams is now compared to where they were a couple of years ago. And I have immense amount of respect for what uh, Sir Frank Williams did with that team over the course of uh, 40 years, all the you know fantastic cars that they built, the races they won, the championships that they won, and some of the iconic legends legendary drivers that that raced for Williams over that 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 you know span of uh, four decades but i mean it was it was pretty apparent over the past uh, several years that they'd hit the ceiling if you want to put it that way as uh, you know being the you know the, the the managers of their own team and i think that that not only was this something that we wouldn't well we we just wouldn't have heard this come from them i think at uh, at some uh, at that point so i think that uh, for, from the williams family i mean and i don't mean that uh, disrespectfully at all but i think it's great to see that uh, as sad as it was to see them go and see such a you know uh, an important owner in and a privateer leave the sports but I was a little bit skeptical at first when they were bought out by the team at uh, Derelton Capital, but uh, they've they've put some good people in place there. I think uh, Capito's record in uh, in other forms of motorsport really speaks for itself. In uh, you know WEC or sorry in rally cars, uh, I was going to say uh, endurance cars. Pardon me, uh, but uh, you know I, I think that uh, he's very pragmatic and, and seems to be very smart about that. I mean, to get ahead of this whole sustainability thing, that that just seems to be w- uh, wise. Rather, let's see what we can do now. And, and and get ahead of this rather than having change forced upon us. And I think that it just kind of shows the, the cultural shift within the uh, inside the team. And I think that if they're thinking at like this at sort of a macro level, I think there'll be spinoffs to that. And we're starting to see improvements uh, with the cars on the track. I mean, they're, they're nowhere where they need to be. And I was thinking, uh, you know, as, as I've watched the resurgence, the renaissance of McLaren over the past uh, several years, you know, maybe Williams, this is not going to happen. Maybe this is going to be one of these long lingering kind of slow deaths and eventually this team will, you know, peter out and just cease to exist. And I mean, there's no guarantee that they won't. However, I'm feeling a little bit more positive when when I hear things like this and I see some small incremental positive things happening both on and off the track that uh, that at least management wise that uh, that 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 there's some good pieces in place now. I will be forever angry with Frank, though. I think he did Claire a very significant disservice by not relinquishing full control of that mm-hmm. team as Agreed. team principal towards the last few years. I don't know if the results ultimately would have been any different because that team was absolutely cash starved. And ultimately, had they not sold the team when they did, they likely would have entered administration and that would have been a very ugly period for Formula One. And my sense is that Liberty really pushed along that transaction because I don't think even at the stage that it happened that Frank and the family were necessarily happy or content to relinquish control. And I think that's why 
key personnel departed when they did almost mid-season after the acquisition, the transaction was completed. But I was, like you, very skeptical that Dalton was there for the right reasons, which were to invest in this team and enrich this team and bring back a championship contender. I sense that either they were there to shine it up and sell it on mm-hmm. or that they were going to strip it down. I, I did not expect that they were going to invest in the team and bring in great personnel in the way that they have and rebuild the culture. Because I think one of the things that Yas discovered upon getting there was that fundamentally the culture in the work environment at Grove, and I don't know this, it's just what I see and what I've heard from people, was not ideal, that it was very much fractured and that it was very much broken. And there were some great people there, but they needed some new leadership that could come in and at a very micro macro level start rebuilding. And Yost has been very clear about the things that he's done to break down the silos within that organization. Yeah, just to um, finish up uh, this thought here. So, like you say, that they've uh, signed up uh, to this uh, United Nations Sports for Climate Action Framework. And uh, so this means that uh, they've pledged to be climate positive and sustainable by uh, 2030. So, uh, Yost uh, said uh, that they're going to be developing advanced technology to help meet this goal. And he uh, had it, uh, or went on to say, quote, we wanted to push the envelope and be the pace setter for sustainability in global motorsport and in the wider automotive industry industry. F1 has the power to inspire millions of people across the world and as the pinnacle of so many advanced technologies, F1 has the ability to create technical solutions to help tackle the challenges we face as a planet. As we progress towards our goal to be climate positive in the years ahead, my hope is that Williams Racing can inspire all those connected with our sport and beyond using motorsport as a catalyst for significant and long-lasting change." End quote. So there you go. Yeah, um, I just I'll we'll come back to this one because this one is uh, related, but it's a little bit uh, off topic. First of all, I wanted to uh, just uh, reference and just talk about some of the comments uh, that uh, Sebastian Vettel had made uh, this week because I think this goes very much hand in hand what we were uh, just uh, talking about. Anyways, um, Sebastian Vettel. He's uh, really be like I said off the top of the show. He's uh, really uh, using his uh, his position, his stature to really, um, I don't want to say push his point of view, but really bring light to, to some issues that uh, he finds uh, you know very very important. So he's issued a warning to Formula One, saying that uh, that if they are not relevant, they will disappear, and it'll you know justifiably be their own faults. Anyways, in an inter- interview with motorsport-total.com, he had to say, uh, when we was asked about it, uh, basically about uh, you know embracing environmentally friendly ideas, he said that needs to start with the power units, and uh, he was, I guess, uh, queried on, I guess, what uh, was perceived as maybe a bit of a hypocritical stance being a Formula One driver, and perhaps being perceived as part of the problem rather than the s- solution. Anyway, he says, Seb, but to say, quote, sure, I think it's valid because Formula One is not green. I think we live in a time where we have innovations and possibilities to arguably make Formula One green as well and not lose any of the spectacle of the excitement, of the speed, of the challenge, of the passion. If anything, we have so many clever people and engineering power here, we should come up with the solutions. But the, the current regulations, I think they're very exciting. The engine is super efficient. 
but it's useless. It's not going to be an engine formula that you will buy in the road in two years when you decide to, to buy a new car, for example. Therefore, you can argue, what is the relevance? I think there are certain things that people are talking about for the future of the sport in terms of regulations that could shift and or shift the change and shift into more relevant changes. And if they come, that's a good thing for Formula One. It's also a vital thing. But if they don't come, I'm not so optimistic. If they don't come, I think Formula One will disappear and probably rightly so. End quote. So I, I think uh, I think he makes some very very good points in those comments, and I think um, I don't think he's being well. He's obviously being a, a little bit sort of negative, but I think he's being very observant in his uh, observant in his observations. <laughs> I, I think he's uh, he's being quite realistic in what uh, Formula One's uh, prospects are. It's uh, either adapt and change or or don't and die. It's really great that we can have a voice like this in the paddock. And we obviously saw him make some very pronounced uh, statements, either verbally and visually when we were in Hungary. And it's really great that Formula One's in a place where you can have one of your four-time world champions making comments that really challenge the integrity of the decisions that are being made related to the power units and the relevance of the road cars. I, I agree. I think if we're 10 years from now and we're still looking at adopting new power unit formula that relies even partly on synthetic fuels, that might not be a great thing, but let's be honest, you and I live in a place where we have one of the highest penetrations of EVs on the planet, electric vehicles on the planet. And last year, they still they still only came in at 10% of the total mix of new passenger cars sold. It's still a very small amount. And again, I'm not disparaging F1 in their decision making and saying they should go all electric or they shouldn't, but let's be honest, we're not going to get to an all EV new car fleet by 2025. And I think what will really push us over the edge is obviously we begin to see major legislation come in and some more progressive Western European countries and some parts of North America in 2030 and 2035. But I agree with him that if we're 10 years from now and we're still rocking and we're still content with a fully synthetic engine or an engine that relies on some degree of synthetic fuels is probably not an ideal place to be. But I think that as a bridge, what we're looking to see in 2025 is smart. And I think it gives the sport another five years to look at developing the next iteration. And maybe that next iteration is fully fully electric or hydrocarbon or some combination of both or something that relies on a much heavier mix of recovered energy. We'll see. But I'm not quite as negative as he is, but I think it's good for the sport to have that that counterpoint and that counter voice in this journey. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's better to get a bit of a wake-up call now while there's still time to adapt and change rather than to blindly forge ahead and do nothing and then find uh, exactly. out that you're completely irrelevant. You've missed the boat and now there's you've passed the point of re uh, no return completely and, agree. and you can't uh, can't can't correct it and uh, I, I think it's uh, great and I think that if you have a voice like Sebastian Vettel like I say four-time world champion guy that's been in the sport for a good many years that uh, that is saying something like that I think that uh, that uh, that that uh, people should uh, take or sit up and uh, take uh, notice. Anyway, so let's take uh, one final break. When we come back here, there, I just wanted to tie up uh, this conversation, and then there's a couple more things that we want to touch on. So we'll do that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay, well, welcome back to the program. And just to to finish up uh, this uh, discussion, and uh, we, we've talked about this at length over the past uh, several weeks and just this uh, continued 
I guess you can uh, still call it a rumor because it uh, obviously hasn't been officially confirmed, but just the whole possibility that we will see Audi or Porsche join Formula One at, uh, at some point in the future and just all the concessions that are being made. But some of the suggestions that, that are floating out there that a possible entry point into Formula One for one or both of these uh, uh, car manufacturers uh, as an engine supplier in Formula One could be Williams, which I think we uh, had talked about last week or two weeks ago, just uh, sort of speculating and tossing things at the wall between ourselves and seeing what uh, what possibly could stick. So that, that one didn't really uh, surprise me too much. But the other one was McLaren. I mean, this one seems kind of uh, logical, but considering that, that they've, uh, you know, had their issues with uh, power units and engine suppliers over the past uh, several years, I mean, obviously it's not that long ago since they broke off that relationship with uh, Mercedes and then hooked up with Honda, which was uh, a real low point, obviously, in their existence. And it was uh, difficult because Honda was still behind the curve when it came to the, the development of the turbo hybrid engines uh, themselves. And then they had a, a stopgap, uh, sort of an interlude with Renault in between before finally coming back and hooking up uh, with uh, Mercedes again uh, for this year. So it it almost seems too soon to suggest that they might uh, or, or, or even expect to hear a move away from them. I mean, of course, Audi or Porsche or Volkswagen, whatever that's, you know, that entry looks like under which badge that, that ultimately remains to be seen but I, I would be surprised honestly if uh, McLaren was one of those teams that uh, that that might partner up with the new one Williams sorry totally you see would it. be or wouldn't be surprised? I, I would be surprised considering just the way that they've bounced around between three different uh, engine manufacturers in less than a, uh, in less than 10 years and then to go with another new engine uh, manufacturer that is yet unproven in Formula One seems a bit of a risk considering right now you are rocking the best uh, power unit in Formula One that uh, and you have that uh, historic link with Mercedes with whom you won a ton of races and championships in the past of course history is history but again you know even if it's a customer power unit I'm still you know if I have that that option to put a Mercedes power unit in the back of my my, my car rather than an unproven Audi Volkswagen Porsche whatever it is I think at least in the short term I want to stay and until proven otherwise that uh, that 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 new power unit is uh, better than the, the one that I currently have. That's an interesting point. And this is possibly my favorite of all of the Formula One subjects, but I'm going to spin this a different way. Okay. I think if you were asking a new engine supplier to come in and start supplying you with engines that other teams have been developing for four or five or six years, that would be a difficult ask, right? Like, hey, look, I'm asking you to design an engine to a specification that other suppliers have perfected over the last four or five years. What would happen in this case is that that alignment wouldn't happen until the new engine regulations are enforced. So that would be 2025 or 2026. So you would be embracing and incorporating that new supplier's power unit in your car at the exact same time that every other team is incorporating a brand new power unit from their existing supplier. So it would almost be a clean sheet in the sense that, hey, we're not the only one getting this fresh engine and this fresh design. Everybody is. So you're right. 
midstream, there is no way they are going to switch power unit suppliers prior to 2025. We we know that verbatim. But what could happen is the announcement could be forged and that team could start developing power units in the background, doing testing, developing the next generation of car to accommodate that power unit. But I think you're right. I think McLaren is locked and loaded with Mercedes until 2025 or 2026, whenever that, whenever that engine formula revision uh, lands, I think mm. that's going to be the case. But I think that possibly they would be open to having these conversations. Now, where the debate gets really interesting is what is really what Volkswagen's ambitions are here. We keep hearing about the fact that they're they're possibly going to incorporate two of their brands into Formula One, Porsche and Audi. But then we also hear debates about the fact that, hey, one of them simply wants to be a supplier and partner with an existing team, whereas the other perhaps wants to buy a team or start a new team from the ground up, given the fact that, hey, with the cost cap and these, these simplified engine regulations, we could probably do that for a much lower cost than it would have been 10 or 15 years ago. So we hear these dueling voices. I think if there's two teams that could potentially be open to the concept of a partnership, I think one would be Williams. Absolutely. I think they've begun to show some independence that they couldn't afford to show under the previous ownership regime. And I think we saw that this spring where it was very clear that Toto and the Mercedes brass were very interested and almost had the expectation that Nick DeVries was going to get a ride in a Williams car next year. And that didn't happen. They went with Alex Albon, a driver from the academy of their arch nemesis, their <laughs> arch enemy, Red Bull, which was a little bit shocking, but it shows that they're flexing their muscles and demonstrating some degree of independence. Yep. I think maybe there's a good fit there. If Porsche can come in or if Audi can come in and look to partner, that could be an option. Maybe Dalton has grander ambitions and maybe they want to sell the team in its entirety and profit on the gains having fixed and restored some of the luster associated with that brand. And likewise, I don't think McLaren... I don't think McLaren's for sale in the sense that it would be overhauled and rebranded Audi, but maybe there's some sort of unification of brands there. I think what we do know and what's been reported widely is that despite all of the great things that McLaren have done on and off the track in their rebuilt culture and their fantastic job embracing social media and partnerships with different clothing brands, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that team is still deeply, deeply, deeply leveraged and deeply, deeply in debt. We know for a fact they had to sell their factory Mm -hmm. and go into a lease back agreement because they needed the capital to keep going. Their road car division has really struggled during the pandemic. Maybe, maybe there's an opportunity for Audi or Porsche to get involved there. So I would be very, very, very surprised if Williams isn't one of those teams that partners with the Volkswagen brand. But I also wouldn't be surprised if it was McLaren. But to your point, I don't think it would be before 2025. Yeah, you know, a couple of things on that. I I could see very much, like you say, a partnership between Williams or uh, uh, McLaren with one of these VW brands, right? And I could see very much like a a Williams Audi or Williams Porsche or McLaren Audi or something like that. I, I, I... I struggle a little bit at this point, especially with McLaren. I think there's, unless the the financial situation was just completely, un, you know, unsalvageable, 
that uh, th- there was no other way than just to you know sell it off and let uh, let somebody take it over. That uh, that you know there, there's just too much heritage there going back to you know like way back when Bruce McLaren founded the team and whenever it was the late 60s or the early 70s, and also to a certain extent uh, with, with Williams as well. I think that Derilton recognized not that the, the historic aspect of the team and just the fact that they got like warehouses full of these amazing cars. In, in different places that uh, that they can show off, but I, I think that the historic component is uh, is important. I think that uh, that is recognized. But I, I'm going to throw a different one out here, and th- this one may or may not be a little bit of a, a surprise. But I could see a team that might be, um, you know, I would say ripe for a sort of a takeover. But I, I would go with the Sauber team because we've seen that before, sort of BMW Sauber, Alfa Romeo Sauber. And I, I could see very much that uh, that maybe one of those entities comes in and takes over that operation and maybe then uh, runs it as a, as a works team. I mean, we've seen them collaborate with uh, different manufacturers. Let, let's be fair. I mean, Alfa Romeo Sauber, I mean, that that's more of a, a marketing vehicle rather than, than, than a true like uh, Alfa Romeo works team. Whereas I think maybe, you know, a decade or more ago when it was BMW that was there was more input from from BMW themselves rather than just the the, the naming rights but that that to me seems to be more of unless it was going to be a start you know startup of a new team right from the ground up I mean that that's a possibility as well but if there was a takeover team to you know existing team to uh, rebrand as uh, like an Audi or a Porsche works team whatever it is I, I think that uh, possibility that uh, that Sauber could be it I mean you know, geographically, it's sort of kind of in the right place. I mean, it's it's not in Power Alley in the UK, but I mean, they're still based in Switzerland, which, you know, geographically is uh, you know fairly convenient for the German, uh, you know, manufacturers. So geographically, it would make sense. You know, it's, it's not that far away. So that's just my thoughts on it. I think that's an interesting point. I think the challenge is going to be all of the speculation over the course of the last few days and the last week about Andretti's group moving in on Sauber. And one of the reports that I'd seen translated out of Germany was the fact that Volkswagen's moved on from eyeing the Sauber team because it sounds like there's an agreement in principle. It just hasn't been announced because I think the Andretti team is still trying to bring together the capital to to finalize it. But you're right. If that wasn't the case, that would have been the ideal team based in continental Europe, yep. close to Germany. It's easier for logistical reasons to, to shift supplies and people back and forth. But it's exciting that we're even having this conversation that Volkswagen wants to be involved. But the fact that they want potentially to have two of their brands is all the more exciting, which I think is uh, is very, 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 very cool and we should all be grateful that formula one's in a position where they're still attractive enough to entice manufacturers to provide engines engine power units well well that's just it right and i think this goes back to a a conversation that we've had a couple of times in in recent weeks is just uh, the the discussions that have been going on between formula one and the existing teams and manufacturers and, and engine suppliers is that they're willing to get rid of the mguh just to make it uh, the, the the existing power unit uh, less complex and make it more attractive to a group like uh, volkswagen to come into formula one and basically that goes goes back to that argument that, yeah, we're willing to concede and make these uh, engines technically a little bit simpler to get you guys to come into the sport. But if we're going to make these concessions, we just don't want you here for like one or two or three years. We want to see a significant uh, commitment uh, of time to the sports, whatever that is, you know, like 
five, well, probably I would think, uh, you know, uh, 10 years would probably be, you know, maybe realistic. I mean, anything less than that would be kind of like, well, like why bother if you're going to be out in five years or less, right? Okay, just a a couple more stories to uh, wrap it up tonight. And this is kind of a cool one for for gamers out there that the uh, the one-off Honda uh, Red Bull livery that we saw in uh, Turkey last week, the the white, which I thought was spectacular, is going to be added to the official Formula One video game for this year, which uh, I can't wait to to check out. I don't know if that update's already in there, but I thought that the car looked uh, spectacular. Now, Red Bull has more or less run one version of their livery with that sort of dark sort of gray blue bluey gray with the uh you know the red bull and the yellow on there for you know years and years and years now and uh, i thought this was a, a spectacular change i thought the contrast was great i mean of course it was a, a tribute to uh, honda's own uh, works team going back years and years and years and decades uh you know to to when they had their own works team in formula one but i really liked it and i thought it proved that uh, that red bull can pull off colors other than dark blue and i thought the car looked uh, wonderful so really looking forward to seeing that and it's kind of cool too to see uh, these uh, th- these one-off liveries uh, you know come and go uh, i'd like to see it happen a little bit more because we saw it earlier this year at monaco with uh, with with mclaren and that looked uh, awesome as well it was a bit uh, a bit of a disastrous weekend for it uh, but at least the car uh, looked uh, great now just one final story as we uh, as we start to wrap it up and before we turn off the lights and well I wouldn't say go home because we're both already home but <laughs> anyways this is interesting so the uh, the new Gra- uh, Miami Grand Prix circuit is set to be completed just 45 days before the inaugural race next year so that is uh, obviously the new track that is being built in the area surrounding Hard Rock Stadium the home of the NFL's Miami Dolphins and uh, well I mean the the race is set to go on the weekend of May 8th 2022 and just uh, you know speaking as somebody that works in the construction industry that uh, they are leaving it very very tight and uh, I would uh, you know just knowing the way that that industry works that if they do not meet that goal i'm sure there will be some heavy heavy financial penalties to pay for the for, for the contractor so i'm sure that uh, not only has the other the most suitable contractor been selected to construct this uh, new venue but uh, i'm sure they are well motivated to make sure that this one gets completed on time because uh, that is not a lot of time to uh, leave it in between the uh, the uh, the end of construction and the official handover to the owner and operator of that uh, that, that track so there we go Right. And like a lot of our listeners, I got an email a few days ago from the Miami Grand Prix Grand Prix race organizers with my pre-sale ticket date. So I will not be able to afford to go, but if anybody (laughs) at Liberty would like to credential us, we will happily pay to get our way down there. But my theoretical pre-sale date is actually October 27th. So probably about two weeks from now. So I'm definitely going to log in because I want to see what the experience looks like. I want to look at pricing. I want to see what the seat views look like. I want to get a sense of what it's going to look like. It does sound like we have a lot of listeners that are going to be attending, which is super exciting. And we talk about the fact that, hey, it's going to be ready just 45 days out. Well, Jeddah, the Saudi GP is just 50 days out and they're still 
heavily, heavily under construction. Now, it's looking more and more like they're going to be able to pull it off. And again, I don't want to criticize the contractor in that case because they were willing to take the race on six months early because they really weren't expected to debut until early 2022. Yeah. But F1, in the hopes of stuffing as many Grand Prix as possible into this 2021 calendar, asked them to come on a little bit early. Now, I know we're close to signing off, but I had committed on our Twitter feed a few days ago that we would get back into the rhythm of answering some fan questions. So okay, I have a couple of really it. quick ones today. I know that you've already turned off the lights. You, <laughs> you've checked the security alarm. You've put a tape in the VCR to make sure those surveillance cameras are working <laughs> throughout the night. But a couple of quick comments here. Sure. One, and this is more of a piece of advice, but shout out to Kevin Kelly, who reached out on Twitter with some advice for Coda. Um, guys, just listen to your last podcast, having been to Coda so many times. Best advice for something to bring to the track. The F1 timing app and some great headphones on a mobile or a tablet is good since you have to keep the app open to use it. Get to hear the BBC broadcast and an easy way to keep track of what's going on, which is important because at F1, you're seeing only a very small slice of that four or five kilometer track. So shout out to you for that one. A couple of other quick questions here as well. One solo who reached out via Twitter had a great question about SIM options. So this is building a SIM setup at home. This is a question that we get all the time. And I'll be very honest. I think you and I can be humble enough. Mm -hmm. We're probably not the right people to ask, but I think it's gotten to the point where maybe we need to look at getting an expert, a subject matter expert on for 10 or 15 minutes to kind of walk us through the journey of building a SIM setup, best practices, all those kind of pieces, because it's an unwieldy popular pursuit right now, especially during COVID. The number of people I've seen on social media that have built their own custom race simulators is super, super cool. I haven't done it. You haven't done it. I don't think it's in our budgets at this point, but uh, it's very, very cool and a, a great question. Finally, one more. And for everybody that uh, I committed, we'd answer your questions on the air tonight. I apologize. I promise we're going to carve out a big chunk of the next podcast. Um, but a great question here from Najib. Hey guys, wondering if you could touch on Ferrari's pace on your next pod. Both drivers seem to be very quick in the last race with their new power units. Wondering if that was more a factor of track and tire conditions or if this is significant boost from their power unit that can put them ahead of McLaren and dare I say closer to the front runners. I'll let you uh, share your thoughts on that one. Yeah, you know, really is interesting. And, and like I've said uh, recently that uh, I think it's going to be really exciting to watch this uh, third place uh, battle in the constructors uh, between Ferrari and McLaren. It, it seems that... I think Ferrari's gotten a little bit more press recently just to, with, with the fact that they really are focusing on their 2022 car where maybe McLaren hasn't been quite as vocal about it, uh, but uh, really looking forward to see what the, uh, the the changes in performance or improvements uh, that we see in the Ferrari power unit and uh, just, just how that shakes down between them and uh, McLaren over these uh, last half dozen uh, or races or so because, yeah, it, it's always kind of fun. I mean, we, we are rightfully fixated on the battle at the front between um, uh, Mercedes and Red Bull and their drivers in in both championships but uh, there, there's good stuff going on further down the uh, the, the, the grid as well uh, we do have some really really good uh, emails as well uh, we have one here from Thomas Andre Riesla who is an electrical engineer and had some questions about why there seems to be some op or you know fair bit of uh, vocal opposition to F1 going uh, electric which we tough touched upon briefly so haven't forgotten about that one, Thomas. We'll, we'll just pocket that one for totally. now when we have, uh, you know, the, you know, time to really 
go into that one and talk it in detail. There is some institutional resistance to moving away fully from some sort of synthetic fuel. Hashtag Ross Braun. (laughs) Yeah, interesting. Yeah, well, there, 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 there is. You know, this is a very, very detailed uh, discussion. So we'll we'll get to it uh, very, very soon. Okay, well, I, I think that is all the time that we have uh, for tonight. Of course, no race uh, this weekend. Uh, as we said in the Spaces chat uh, tonight, we are extremely jealous of all of you that uh, will be going to uh, Austin uh, next weekend. And uh, we certainly will be living vicariously through all of you that will be there in person. And uh, we're, we're excited at the same time that uh, things are opening back up and uh, you know Canadians will once again be able to travel to the United States and vice versa. So uh, hopefully that is on the cards for us uh, next year. Anyways, uh, that is it for us. If you want to get in touch, uh, best ways to do so on uh, Twitter at ScooteryF1Pod or drop us uh, a line on the old-fashioned email at ScooteryF1Pod at gmail.com. That's it. That's a wrap. And of course, if you want to help us and support us, easiest way only takes a couple of minutes or even less. If you want to leave us a rating review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else where you listen and enjoy your podcast, we would really, really appreciate it. And until next time, enjoy your weekend and uh, have fun. Just enjoy the weekend coming up. On behalf of myself and Mark Hamilton, have a good night and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye for now.